What's up, everyone? Welcome to the New England Gothic. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to throw it out there that I would love it so much if you could take literally three seconds and give this podcast five stars. It helps way more than you could ever know. It's seriously so helpful for a growing podcast. But yeah, I just wanted to pop in before this episode and just put that out there. Thank you all again for all of your support. Now get ready for today's episode because it is an absolute horror show. This is the longest, most in-depth, horrifying episode I have ever done so far. I hope you enjoy. Hello friends, don't mind me, I've got a raspy voice thing going on today. Am I sick? Is it allergies? Ooh, that sounded a little rough. Or, you know, am I spending too much time on Jasper the Doll TikTok, if you know you know? I guess we'll never really find out, will we? Anywho, Today's episode is really, really heavy. I actually recorded it yesterday, found out a lot more information. This case is kind of hard to track down the details. So yet again, I have recorded an entire episode and then said, you know what? This sucks. I have better info now. So this is my second round with this topic. Today, we are covering a notorious woman serial killer who, in my opinion, should be up there with the likes of Jeffrey Dahmer because of how twisted her killings are and how many victims she has, yet it seems no one's even heard of her. Right? Girls can be serial killers too. Like, she girl-bossed her way into being a super notorious serial killer and no one's ever heard of her? I'm just kidding. These people are sick and evil. They do not deserve the recognition that we give them, yet here we are today. My opinion when it comes to true crime is... It is important to talk about these stories. I want to dive really deep into her very traumatic childhood and look at the circumstances of her life because we can ask ourselves, how can we learn from history? How can we avoid this in the future? But I'm getting ahead of myself. By the way, I should probably introduce myself and the podcast, but I just get so excited to get right into it. So, hello, my name is Kate, aka Creepy Caitlin. And this is the New England Gothic. So bear with me today while I've got this raspy thing going on. I genuinely have no idea where it came from. But it doesn't matter because now my Jasper the Doll impersonation is so much better. Again, niche TikTok comment, whatever. I love it. Okay, so I wrote nine pages about our serial killer today. Nine pages, like not double-spaced, 11 font. It's the most I've ever written about a topic so far. And this is going to be our longest episode and the most in-depth episode yet. I have been nervous to tackle big cases like this and to go super into depth. So bear with me. This is our first heavy hitter of an episode. So today, without further ado, we will be telling the gruesome, tragic, 
horrifying, unsettling, disturbing tale of Jane Toppin, a.k.a. Jolly Jane. And you all know at this point, I do like to throw a trigger warning into episodes if there's going to be subject matter that you're not comfortable listening to. I'm going to be honest, every single bad thing that I could give you a trigger warning for is happening in this story. Specifically, we have a lot of sexual abuse and like elder abuse, just a lot of tragedy and like it's a medical serial killer. She's an angel of death. I'll give that away. She is a nurse. So if these topics are too uncomfortable for you, I'm just going to be honest, you probably want to skip this episode. I also want to put a quick kind of disclaimer on this case. Because it is an older case, some details are a little hard to nail down. For example, like one article would say one thing, whereas another book written about her would say a different thing. And I got my information from like four or five sources for this case because I want to do it justice. So I'm trying my absolute best, but I do apologize if you are listening and you heard something different about this case. I'm just doing the best I can with the pieces I put together. It is an old case. This is happening during the late 1800s. And yeah, let's get into it. So Jolly Jane. Like I mentioned, Jolly Jane's story is very intense. She has 12 confirmed victims, but it is thought she killed over 30 people during her time as a nurse, where she was very highly regarded, but she herself claims she killed upwards of 100 people. That is a lot of fucking people to kill, even just the 12 confirmed kills. Jeffrey Dahmer? had 17. She's not that far off. And somehow she's just not very well known, but I'm getting ahead of myself per usual. I just need a second because I am blind as a bat and I need to turn my font bigger so that I can actually read it while I'm recording. Whew. Okay. Wow. I'm only 31 years old and I'm falling apart. All right, let's get into it. Jane Toppin. All right. So According to the New England Historical Society, psychiatrists say that she is one of the most unusual serial killers in history. Like many serial killers, she did have an unstable, horrifyingly traumatic childhood, which is not an excuse, but we'll get into that. But Jane was an erotophonophiliac, which means she gained sexual pleasure from killing and death which is very unusual to see in a case of a woman serial killer. Usually, we see the sexual pleasure with male serial killers. As Jane's victims would lay dying, she got a powerful erotic charge and pleasure from holding them and caressing them. Jane Toppin couldn't resist that excitement, and she admitted that she aspired to have killed more helpless people than any man or woman who ever lived. Jane was also interesting because her method of killing was, it was not instant. She would kill people slowly with a specialty poison cocktail that she mastered over her years as a nurse. And she would slowly bring them in and out of consciousness as they slowly died. And this is when this like sexual element would come in. So she had many years working as a nurse and many patients to experiment on before she mastered this technique 
That's why it's kind of unknown how many people really truly did die as a direct result of Jane. It wasn't uncommon for people to die in a hospital, and she worked with a lot of elderly people, so it's really just going to be hard to nail down exactly how many people she got away with killing because no one would suspect anything. Even in her time as a private nurse, you know, you're not healthy. That's why you have a private nurse. People are already expecting you to not be well. So she just was able to kind of slip under the radar and kill a lot of people. It's horrifying. Honestly, she is such a scary and deranged serial killer. It's, I'm still shocked that as someone who's been a true crime fan for a very long time, I'd never even heard of her. I found out about her because I went to visit Taunton State Hospital. I used to live in Taunton, Mass. And I, you know, look up the history. I was very interested in, there was supposedly a satanic cult. Maybe, you know, we'll touch upon that another day. But then I see, oh, famous female serial killer was held here. And I'm thinking, who is that? And then, you know, I do a quick deep dive and I realize, holy shit, this case is fucking crazy. Pardon my French, but it's fucking crazy. So let's start with the beginning. Let's talk about Jane Toppin's life, her really tragic childhood, and explore maybe how and why she ended up this super scary, deranged serial killer. So our story starts in the 1850s, but Jane Toppin was not born Jane Toppin. Jane Toppin was born Honora Kelly on March 31st, 1854. She was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and the daughter of Irish immigrants. Her mother, named Bridget Kelly, unfortunately died of tuberculosis when she was very young, and of course, this is going to be hard for anyone, but her father, Peter Kelly, who was already known as an eccentric and unfortunately an abusive alcoholic. He just fully lost it when his wife died. And the girls that, you know, her sisters and her just grew up in a really tragic situation. Her dad was also known as Kelly the Crack, aka Kelly the Crackpot. I'm curious though, because crack in Irish means something else. And I wonder if we say, oh, they must have meant crackpot, but I wonder if it was the Irish meaning with that's a whole nother thing. Okay. So Peter Kelly was said to have really suffered from mental illness and there were reports. It really seems like this truly did happen because this was reported in multiple sources. He was said to have sewn his own eyelids shut while working as a tailor. So we've already got signs of mental illness running in the family. We've already got a traumatic childhood. You know, she's the youngest of three girls, lost her mom very young, has an abusive alcoholic father. There were rumors that the girls would be seen walking around dirty, covered in bruises with rags for clothing, just all around traumatic for everyone involved. So by 1860, only a few years after his wife died, Peter Kelly surrenders his two youngest daughters, eight-year-old Delia Josephine and the then six-year-old Honora, to the Boston Female Asylum, which was also used as an orphanage for girls, and he never saw them again. Personally, I think that that might have been the right thing to do because at least he could own up to the fact that he clearly could not be a caregiver for his daughters and the orphanage he left the girls at did train them in basic skills like sewing cooking household chores 
a lot of young girls who ended up at this orphanage slash female asylum, as it was called, a lot of them were trained to be indentured servants. They would be placed in these homes, work until they were 18, and then just go off into the world. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of records about what was going on during this time when Honora was in the orphanage, but we do know that her older sister, Nellie, who was not put in the orphanage, ended up getting committed to an insane asylum, and her sister, Delia Josephine, left the orphanage, fell into a life of poverty, and succumbed to alcoholism very young. So we just don't know a lot about what happened to her sisters, but we do know it was not pleasant. So obviously, you know, that's a lot of, I keep saying it, but a ton of trauma. Again, not an excuse to be a horrifying serial killer, but we need to keep that in mind. This poor girl is dealing with all this before the age of 10. I'm sure her brain is not having a good time developing right now. So in November 1862, about two years after she was placed in the orphanage and abandoned by her father, Honora was placed as an indentured servant in the home of Mrs. Ann Toppin of Lowell, Massachusetts. Alongside her was a foster sister named Emily. So here's where my sources kind of are conflicting. Some sources say that Emily was taken from the same orphanage at the same time as Honora, but others say she had already been adopted by Anne Toppin. So Emily's origins, I actually tried to research them. I could not find anything other than, well, we'll get to the other. I don't want to give too much away, but... One of the sources that I got a lot of information from that seems to be the most valid does state that Emily came from the same orphanage. So I'm just going to assume that Emily and Honora were taken from the same orphanage and fostered by the Toppins together at the same time, because it makes the most sense. Being an Irish Catholic girl during the 1860s, Honora faced a lot of prejudice, especially from her foster family, they relentlessly bullied her, and also, she was a little overweight, and she was ruthlessly, ruthlessly bullied for being overweight. So, it was very clear from the beginning that her foster sister, Emily, was the favorite. Her foster mother, Anne, doted on Emily, loved her so much, gave her everything, and actually formally adopted her, which was something Honora always wanted but never had. So, of course, this is going to cause a little bit of resentment to fester. So even though she was never formally adopted by the Toppins like Emily, Honora did take on their surname because they wanted her to distance herself from her former family, from her Irish Catholic upbringing. So the Toppins decided to pass her off as an Italian girl whose parents died at sea because, like I said, of the stigma associated with the Irish. They also renamed her Jane Toppin. So enter onto the stage. We now, Honora Kelly, like I said, is no more. We now have Jane Toppin. So by the way, Jane's only like 10 years old when this is happening. Imagine your mother dies, your father's abusive, abandons you. Then you get kind of adopted, not really, but you're placed in a foster home and you're forced to be a servant and then they strip you of your entire identity because they say who you really are is not good enough we don't like it and on top of that you are bullied by your foster mother who's the only parent figure in your life and you're watching a girl who came from the same background as you and the same orphanage get everything handed to her and doted on 
you're going to have really fucked up feelings about yourself. I'm sorry, but nobody would live like that and not end up a little, I don't even know the word. She's going to have issues. Like anybody would have issues. So let's talk about Jane as she now attends school. So Jane was very well liked in school and she did very well in school. However, she displayed the kind of behavior of a sociopath pretty young. They said that they thought she was a sociopath because she was caught telling outrageous lies. She told people her father sailed around the world, that her sister married a nobleman, that her brother was a decorated veteran, and he was given a medal by Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg. However, again, like I'm saying, I'm interjecting my own personal opinion here. I don't think it's that crazy for like a preteen girl whose, again, entire life and identity has been stripped away from her. I think it's pretty harmless that she is doing that. But once you get to know her later on, you realize, okay, this is the start of a problem. But the fact that they call that behavior like sociopathic is very interesting to me because I feel like any kid in that situation would do that. So anywho, like I said, Jane does well in school. She's well-liked. People described her as being extremely entertaining, very charismatic. So they kind of, like her lying was definitely annoying to people. There were people who described her as being really manipulative, like behind the scenes. I read that classmates described her as a teacher's pet. So she would suck up to her teachers, be super awesome in front of authority figures, and then turn around and just kind of be a tattletale. Definitely was described as a gossip all of her life. So I don't know. That's where we're at right now. So let's move on to Jane turning 18. So she graduates from Lowell High School and she is now freed from her indentured servitude and they give her the $50 they're supposed to give her when she is freed from her servitude. And even though she's allowed to go out into the world now, she chose to stay behind in the household as a servant. But to put salt on an open wound that's been opened her whole life, Anne Toppin, her foster mother, dies. And remember, Elizabeth at this point has been formally adopted. So everything goes to Elizabeth. Elizabeth takes over the entire household, inherits everything. And Jane continues to work for the family. Now she's working for her sister. That must have been so painful. Again, seeing her foster sister get everything handed to her. Everything she ever wanted. And now she has to work for her. Of course she's going to resent her. I'm sure at this point she's feeling very low about herself. She's already lived a life full of circumstances that would obliterate anybody's self-esteem. But things get worse because her sister Elizabeth gets married to the church deacon named Oramel Brigham, who moves into the Toppin household. And I guess this caused so much tension that... Jane actually leaves the Toppin household, which she's lived there for 20 years at this point. She says, you know what? I'm done. I'm sure it was just really painful. Again, just never getting anything you want. She was described as saying she really wanted a husband. She really wanted a family. She wanted to be a mother, but nobody wanted her. She was really bullied. Her self-esteem was low. She was bullied for being overweight. She was said to guzzle beer and gossip and just not be very ladylike. So it seems like 
based on the descriptions of her, she was just that friend that's really entertaining and they're a great time, but they're kind of crazy and you keep them around because you're like, what the fuck is Jane going to do next? But yeah, unfortunately, just nobody wanted to marry her. She could not find a suitor. By the time Jane leaves the Toppin household, she's about 33 years old. Self-esteem, probably, like I said, I keep saying it, non-existent. She's probably severely mentally ill at this point, but you know, there's no mental health resources even today. Do you really think there's going to be mental health resources for an Irish Catholic indentured servant? No. So again, I'm trying, I'm not trying to ever justify someone being a literal serial killer, but we have to keep in mind that this was a long time coming. This was a lot of shit festering. It's just obviously overall extremely tragic. Maybe as an attempt to gain some control in her otherwise super traumatic and powerless life, Jane started training as a nurse. So in 1887, she starts a training program at Cambridge Hospital. This is where she earns the nickname Jolly Jane for her super charismatic, bubbly, friendly personality. However, She's not a kid anymore, and the gossiping and the lying, the embellishing, the stealing, it's not cute. She's a grown-ass woman. So she's not really liked by the students. It was also noted that during this time period, Jane became addicted to reading smut, which was especially deviant for a woman during this time. So At some point during her training, it was said that the hospital administration grew really concerned because when they were working on autopsies, Jane became literally obsessed. And like, don't get me wrong, having a morbid fascination, wanting to be involved in the autopsy, I feel like a lot of us can relate to that. A lot of us listening, I'm sure, have that like morbid fascination with death. However, she was a little too excited. And people speculate that this is when she had her (laughs) sexual awakening. I don't know what else to call it, but realized that she was getting turned on and getting pleasure by death. But yeah, so she just is obsessed with the autopsy. She's acting really strange. And eventually they just pass it off as a quirk, like they did with many of the odd things Jane did. So little did they know, she had also begun experimenting with morphine on her elderly patients. There's a patient who survived her encounter with Jane. This seems to be in the very beginning of Jane's killing and experimenting. There's no previous victims that are confirmed before this date. So it's safe to say she's experimenting for a while before she moves on to full-on murder. That being said, I wonder how many people she did kill during this time that she got away with because nobody's questioning anything. They're already in the hospital and they're already elderly or close to death to begin with. So this story is absolutely horrifying and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get into it. So the patient's name is Amelia Finney and she had an operation on her uterus in 1887. So after the operation, she said Jane came into her room tried to dose her with some medicine, and it caused her to lose consciousness. She remembers Jane climbing into bed with her, kissing her and fondling her, 
and then trying to make her take more medication, but she was able to muster up some strength and refuse the medication. And that's when a doctor came in and startled Jane. So Jane, you know, jumped off the bed and kind of ran away from the situation. Amelia said it was so strange and scary that she convinced herself it had to have been a dream. She said, there's no way this happened. But 14 years later, when Jane Toppin is eventually arrested, spoiler, Finney realizes she is lucky to be alive, that she easily could have been one of Jolly Jane's first victims. So eventually Jane starts training at an elite nursing program held at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's very highly regarded by the higher ups. Like I said, she's a teacher's pet. She's always been a teacher's pet. Then she has this other side where she's like a manipulative, gossiping person that people don't like. So she ends up losing this position because she snuck out one night. So she gets sent back to Cambridge, but she's fired from Cambridge's program because of a reckless use of opiates. Hmm, I wonder what she was using the opiates for. Nevertheless, because she was so well-liked, she was obviously a very charming and must have been very smart. The doctors there, it's so crazy to me. This reminds me of Dr. Death. If you've not listened to Dr. Death, please listen to Dr. Death because it just shows you that to this day, people would rather brush things under the rug than confront an actual problem that leads to people dying. But anyway, because she's so well-loved, the doctors actually recommend her as a private nurse for wealthy clients. In fact, she becomes one of the most popular nurses in Boston. She's so highly requested. Jane actually does really well for herself. She earns $25 a week in a time when the average woman was earning about $5 or less a week. So a woman coming from her background, she's doing great. She should be proud of herself. I, But... Yeah, she's also a horrifying serial killer. So maybe she shouldn't be proud of herself. I don't know. I have way too much sympathy. I need to relax on the sympathy. My boyfriend tells me that, you know how they say that boomers all have no sympathy or empathy because they all have lead poisoning? We were joking around because I live in an old apartment with a clawfoot tub and apparently clawfoot tubs are full of lead. We actually have to go get a lead test for it. And in my head, I'm thinking... Maybe it's good for me. <laughs> Maybe I'll have less. <laughs> no, that's fucked up. I'm not trying to joke about lead poisoning. I'm sorry. <laughs> Listen, things are about to take a very dark turn. We're about to get into the victims of Jane Toppin. So I just wanted to throw a little joke in there. Maybe give you a little laugh before you have your jaw on the floor because the rest of this story is so gross and awful. So shall we? Toppin begins her poisoning spree in 1895 by killing her landlord, Israel Dunham. She takes care of his widow, but eventually kills her as well two years later. Her reason for killing them? She said they were old and cranky. A little pattern I want to note. When she kills someone, she tends to, like, quote-unquote, step up and assist the victim's family. Maybe she wants to be seen as a hero or feel like, really important to them, but she ends up usually killing them as well. So we'll get into that. Her next notable kill would be another two years later in 1899. This one is, in my opinion, like the climax of her serial killing career. She actually goes and kills her foster sister, Elizabeth. So killing Elizabeth 
Jane herself admits this was a revenge kill. It was not a sexual pleasure kill. And it's so sad because it seems like Elizabeth had no idea her whole life that Jane had been fostering this resentment that would lead to her death. So let's get into it. Elizabeth and Jane stayed in touch their entire adult life. And Elizabeth would often invite Jane to come visit and she would stay in the house they all grew up in. And they would also vacation down the Cape together. They each had their own Cape house. And in the summer of 1899, Jane said, hey, Elizabeth, why don't you come to my house? Elizabeth had been complaining of feeling depressed. So Jane says, let's go on a picnic. I think that'll make you feel so much better. Let's, you know, get all cute and go on the beach and we're going to have a picnic. It's going to be great. So Elizabeth goes to the beach and they eat cold corned beef, taffy, and mineral water. And the mineral water is laced with strychnine. According to Jane, like I said, this was a revenge kill, so she made it especially painful and brutal for Elizabeth. Elizabeth died slowly over the course of days, and Jane said, I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. That is stone-cold evil. Your own sister, who was reported to have treated her extremely well when she took over the household. After killing her sister, there were deaths of patients of Jane. There was Mary McNear, who died on December 28, 1899. She was 70 years old. And William Ingram, another patient, who died January 27, 1900, also aged 70. But no one really knows why other than... She had been quoted as saying to classmates in her nursing program, I don't see any use in keeping elderly people around. Okay, red flag, anyone? Red, red flag? Nobody's worried about this? I don't know. Hi, honeybee. I don't know if you can hear her clip-clopping around, but she's sitting right here with me. She's saying hello. She's loving. It's a beautiful spring day today. Sorry, I had to take another, I get so worked up when I tell these stories and it's like stressful. This is dark material to talk about. So we're having a little honeybee break. All right, enough of honeybee, back to the murder. Her next victim was actually a friend turned patient named Sarah, but she went by Myra Connors. So Myra Connors had a great job as a matron at a college and the job came with housing. It's unclear whether Myra was already sick or if she quote unquote mysteriously fell ill when visiting with Jane, but Jane is staying with Myra and aiding her after she's fallen ill, which spoiler alert ends in Myra dying. So after Myra dies, Jane goes to her employers and claims Oh, yes, Myra had actually been training me to take over her job. And they just say, okay. And they give her her housing and everything and her job. But Jane did not last long. She was fired for stealing and, again, gossiping and being generally not liked. She's lost her job and she's lost her housing. So remember Elizabeth's husband, Ormel Brigham? Well, Jane decides, you know what? I'm going to go after him. But as a husband, she doesn't want to kill him. She wants to marry him. It seems like even though she's literally killed her sister, Elizabeth, she cannot let go of this resentment. It's almost like she wants to take over her entire life. So what is Jane's plan to woo old Oromel? By killing all the women in his life, she thinks 
somehow this will make him love her? Reports say that to impress him, she started by killing Brigham's housekeeper, Florence Calkins. Jane takes over the position, but Brigham made it clear he did not want her as a housekeeper or as a wife. It seems like she killed the housekeeper so that she could impress him with her housekeeping skills. She also killed his sister, Edna Bannister, and surprise, he still doesn't want her. So Jane Toppin still tries to win his love by poisoning him and nursing him back to health. But this is where some crimes overlap, because around this same time, Jane takes out an entire family. So we're going to pause on Oromel, and we are going to talk about the literal whole family that she murders. During all these years that we've talked about, Jane rents a cottage. Remember, she has a cape house. She's renting this cape house in Bourne from the Davis family, but she never paid the rent. So after all these years of renting this cape house, she owes about $15,000 in today's money in rent. So obviously the Davises want their money and the matron of the Davis family named Maddie Davis, she takes a trip down from Cambridge one very hot day to talk to jolly old Jane and collect the rent. When she gets there, Jane offers her a drink and what do you think happens? Jane slowly kills Maddie with a cocktail of morphine and atropine. However, because it was a hot day and there's the fact that Maddie actually fell while on her way out the door, nobody was surprised when she fell ill. Jane like had nature on her side for this kill and she easily got away with it. When Maddie's laying ill in Jane's home, she writes to the family and eventually, you know, Maddie dies. Remember, Jane kills her victims over the course of days because she is savoring every moment that they are dying. She is savoring bringing them in and out of consciousness, climbing into bed with them. I'm sick to my stomach just thinking about it, but that's what's happening here. Jane wrote to the family and she begins to prey on them as they are grieving. Jane convinces the Davis family that she should move in with Alden Davis and take care of him. He's absolutely wrecked by the death of his wife, of course, and by, quote, taking care of him, she kills him next. And once she's done, she's killed the parents, Alden and Maddie. She goes after their two daughters, who are both married, named Minnie Gibbs and Geraldine Gordon. So Jane uses her skills as an expert gossip and manipulator to convince those around her that Geraldine is suicidal over the death of her parents. She planned this very carefully, being sure to note all the strange and, quote, suicidal behavior coming from the poor woman. So when Geraldine dies, her death was, as suspected, written off as a suicide. So now the last remaining member of the family, Minnie Gibbs, really does Jane in. At this point, you may be asking yourself, why did she kill this entire family? What was the point? Minnie's death is also thought to be a revenge kill because it was said that Jane had asked Minnie, hey, I know your whole family died, so like, I don't know, maybe you could forgive that debt I owe you all? LOL, that would be so cute of you. And Minnie says, absolutely not. You still owe my family that money. So Jane says, all right, fine, I'm going to kill you in an especially fucked up way. 
as Jane is doing her thing, slowly poisoning Minnie Gibbs, she makes Minnie's 10-year-old son get into the bed with them. So it's Jane in the bed, cuddling and fondling Minnie Gibbs as she's dying. And she makes Minnie's 10-year-old son get in and cuddle with them. It is just so beyond sickening to do that in general and then to make a child watch. This is where my mind is at thinking, this woman is so stone cold, evil, and twisted. I don't understand why she's not more well known because clearly America has an obsession with these sick, sick serial killers. We are literally obsessed with these really, really disgusting, sick, horrible people, yet no one has ever really talked about Jane Toppin. That is so sick to me. That one in particular, just getting the child involved, disgusting. Whew, sorry, I get a little heated about this, clearly. So Jane at this point, like we said, has decimated an entire family, but let's not forget about Mr. Brigham, her man, the guy she wants. She put Mr. Brigham on her manifest board and said, I'm going to manifest him as a husband and I'm just going to kill everyone to get that. That is how I'm manifesting my goals. So like I said, she tried poisoning him because remember, she's an expert at this morphine atropine cocktail. She knows exactly how much is needed to kill a person versus knock them out. So she tries poisoning him and nursing him back to health because she wants to be the hero and she wants to earn his love. And then that still doesn't work. So she says, I'm going to tell everyone you got me pregnant. So at this point, understandably, Oralum Brigham is sick of her shit, to be quite frank, and he kicks her out. So Jane tries to, quote, commit suicide. And I say, quote, commit suicide because it was a very calculated dose of morphine. Like I said, she knows how much is needed. So she's just knocked out. It was a failed suicide, but she does go to the hospital. Now, during this time, the father-in-law of Minnie Gibbs, Captain Gibbs, is growing quite a bit suspicious over the fact that an entire family that was previously healthy just all died one after the other. I don't know, like a little suspicious? Nobody else thought that this was weird besides the father-in-law? I mean, at this point, it's 1900, 1901. I think people were just dropping like flies anyway, so no one was really suspicious besides Captain Gibbs. And Captain Gibbs gets together with a renowned toxicologist and they get approval from a judge to exhume the bodies. And this gets in the news, right? So they're talking about this in the newspapers and Jane definitely sees that people are now suspicious of what happened to the Davis family. However, within a few days of the newspaper articles being published, a president is assassinated, so nobody's talking about the Davises anymore, and Jane thinks, whew, got out of this one, everyone's going to completely forget, we're not worried about it, but she does go to New Hampshire to stay with some friends. When the bodies of Minnie and Geraldine are exhumed and tested, they reveal poison. At first, arsenic was assumed, but with further testing, they realized it was the infamous mix of morphine and atropine. That's when the puzzle pieces come together and Gibbs starts to ask around about the one woman who's present for all of these deaths. 
Jane Toppin. He even himself recalls that Jane was a very strange woman and there was, in retrospect, strange behavior as he witnessed her caring for these family members. So he gets the police involved and the investigation begins. So like I said, at this point, you know, Jane's been healing from her suicide attempt. She's seen the news. So she's visiting, aka hiding out, with an old friend named Sarah Nichols in Amherst, New Hampshire. Finally, on October 29th, 1901, police arrest Jane Toppin. So Jolly Jane Toppin goes to trial for murder in the summer of 1902. She confessed to her lawyer that she killed at least 31 people, but perhaps as many as 100. So they definitely go for the whole insanity plea. She says she's not guilty because she's insane. She also claims that she started her killing spree because a boy dumped her when she was 16. She said he was a Lowell office worker and he gave her a promise ring, but then moved to Holyoke and met someone else. A true Lowell love story. No, I'm just kidding. So she was quoted as saying, if I had been a married woman, I probably would not have killed all of those people. She said, I would have my husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. Poor Jane. So an eight-hour trial takes place in Barnstable County, and a jury deliberates for only 27 minutes, and they do find Jane not guilty by reason of insanity. I'm not sure if Jane thought that she would just get sent away for a little while and then would be released once she was quote-unquote cured, but psychiatrists who evaluated her during the court process found that she really was insane. Jane does spend the rest of her life in Taunton State Hospital, where she dies August 17th, 1938, in her 80s. So she spends almost 40 years at Taunton State Hospital. Some attendants at the hospital do remember her calling them into her room and smiling, saying, get some morphine, dearie. And we'll go out into the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. Absolutely chilling. So a little history on Taunton State Hospital before we end today's episode. This is how I discovered the story of Jane Toppin was doing a little research on the hospital. And yeah. So Taunton State Hospital is located, of course, in Taunton, Massachusetts, where it is still standing, operating, and it is in the middle of the Bridgewater Triangle. The hospital itself has a dark, interesting story. This place has everything, you know, we've got the serial killers. There was another famous serial killer who was placed in Taunton State Hospital. Maybe I'll do an episode on him. It's not as intense as the Jane story. It's a really quick one. So we've got that. We've got reports of hauntings and, like I said, potentially a satanic cult. And according to the National Park Service, the Taunton Lunatic Asylum, as it was then called, was authorized in 1851 as the result of an 1848 legislative study that demonstrated a very urgent need to relieve overcrowding at a different facility in Worcester. So by the time Jolly Jane ends up in Taunton State Hospital, it's a pretty new building. It's a pretty new place. This building is built. That's a weird sentence. They built the building after the famous what's called the Kirkbride model of asylums. This really reflects the 19th century humanitarian reform movement for those they deemed insane. 
The Kirkbride design allowed the hospital and campus to operate as its own little town, and the structures were built to maximize like natural light, air circulation. The building itself was supposedly going to have a curative effect on the patients inside. But despite the humanitarian efforts, many people very much suffered behind the walls of Taunton State Hospital. Women were placed in this facility with anxiety, panic attacks, fatigue, postpartum depression, and unfortunately, they were given electroshock therapy, lobotomies. They were very much abused there. So on one hand, you're like, well, you know what? Jolly Jane gets put in this horrible facility where she's abused for the rest of her life. Yay, karma. But then think about probably 99% of the other inmates are just innocent people who could have, you know, just had a little bit of support and they wouldn't have ended up in a state hospital, especially one that was rumored to, you know, really sexually abuse the patients, physically abuse them, mentally abuse them. There were a lot of reports of forced labor at Taunton State Hospital, which was not a happy place, which is probably why it is rumored to be so damn haunted. I also want to add that Lizzie Borden was held here before her trial, but not at the same time as Jolly Jane. So, yeah, this story is a lot. This was my first true crime deep dive. I hope I did the story justice. Like I said, I have mixed feelings about true crime. I've unfortunately actually been close to not one, but two very famous newer true crime cases. And I've seen how when a case goes viral or is covered by a big podcast, I'm not saying those people who are covering these stories or talking about the stories, I'm sure they mean well for the most part, but I have seen how the families absolutely hate it. It can be damaging. It can cause more problems. So I personally am going to stay away from any modern true crime. Like if it, if it's not more than 50 years old, I'm not going to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Again, no judgment to those who do cover those types of cases. If you do, I implore you to reach out to victims' families and ask permission if you are going to do it see how they feel, see if maybe there's an organization or a charity that you could ask your followers to donate to. Just be helpful instead of harmful. Make it a positive experience instead of one that is exploiting. Sorry, I don't mean to end this episode on like a, I'm holier than thou and you should do what I say. I don't mean it like that. Just take it from someone who has that perspective of being a podcaster, being someone who talks about true crime, who also knows victims and knows victims' families. And it's, without giving too much away, I'm just, end rant, just end rant. Try and put more good into the world every day. I'm such a Pisces, but I'm serious. Things are rough. We all need to show each other a little bit more love. I'm ranting. It's my end of episode rant. You have all been so awesome. We are actually really close to what my first personal goal for this podcast was, which is 1,000 plays. We're really, really close. I think as of right now, we're at 800. So keep sharing, keep telling your friends, keep playing. I love you all so much. It's so helpful. You are all seriously potentially going to change my life and I will be forever grateful. And yeah, as always, you can find me on TikTok, creepycaitlin, C-A-I-T-L-I-N. 
The podcast is on Instagram, The New England Gothic, just one word. And our email is thenewenglandgothic at gmail.com. Send me your listener lore. Send me a spooky story. Send me a recommendation. I've gotten great emails with places I should cover and amazing listener stories. I can't wait to do more listener lore episodes. And if you, you know, you just want to vent or have something you need to share with someone and you have no one else you can talk to, email me. I'm serious. Just send me an email. Just get it off your chest. And yeah, I think I've ranted enough. That was the story of Jane Toppin, and it was a doozy. And I think I need to take like a nap because that one was dark. So yeah, I'll see you all next week. I love you all so much. Again, this is the New England Gothic, and my name is Kate Ford.